Well, it's a real joy to uh, join with brothers and sisters serving and worshiping the Lord in the South Bay area. Uh, this area has been home, uh, a home base anyway, for my wife and I since 1974. Uh, we moved here after graduate school uh, at that time. And uh, I understand your church hasn't, uh, hasn't been in existence that long even. Uh, but uh, we've been here uh, off and on, of course, since we were overseas for 34 years. Uh, the first five years, uh, I served on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. My main campus was Long Beach State University. And uh, my wife, uh, who is a physician, uh, did her internship and residency at Harbor General Hospital. <laughs> and uh, so we bought a house and uh, settled in and, and uh, went overseas with OMF International. Years ago, it was known as the uh, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and before that, the China Inland Mission, founded by Hudson Taylor. And uh, as was mentioned, I've, I've, I, I wasn't the field director for 34 years, but for part of that time. And we had as many as 100 staff reaching out to people in Taiwan, where there's maybe uh, three, and a half, three to three and a half percent of the, the population is Christian. And uh, then the last 16 years, I was training pastors in a Taiwan seminary. And four years ago, we retired and returned to the States and uh, are living here in Torrance again. Anyway, it's good, good to be with you. Today's topic that I'd like to address is how can Christians win a hearing for the gospel among unprepared people? This is an issue for evangelists and church planters, and maybe for, for everyone in the Christian church who want to see the gospel go forward. We think the gospel of Jesus Christ is a life-changing story, a life-changing dynamic, a wonderful thing that we think is the most precious thing in the world and affects our, our lives for eternity. And we think it's good for everyone. It's not just for some small segment of the population uh, here in the United States. It's not just for uh, Westerners. It's, not, it's for all peoples in all places, in all times in all locations, in all situations. And there are places around the world where people don't know very much about Christianity. Uh, how do you start taking the gospel to a group of people who you don't know, and they don't know you, and uh, maybe they don't know much about Christianity, and they might even be antagonistic to Christianity. There are places around the world, and we can, uh, especially in the Muslim world, but other places as well, where uh, Christian is not a nice word. Well, we're going to take a look at a biblical case study, Acts 14, 8 to 20. And it was just read to you. But uh, since I've introduced the topic, I'd like to read it again but I'd like you to be thinking of a question when I'm reading it. And the question I'd like to ask you as you, as you uh, uh, listen to the words is, um, what do we learn about taking the gospel to others? 
positively or negatively, from this historical event. Okay, so I will, uh, I'll, I'll start reading and I'll see if I can get my clicker to work right here. Oh dear, it's too small to read very well, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, I will read clearly. Uh, in Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Uh, the, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, uh, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Uh, oh, no. Ah. Oh, there we go. Uh, the, the living God uh, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had, no, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. What in the world is going on here? This is an important event in the early spread of the gospel. You might not think it, but it really was. Paul was on his first missionary journey. He was traveling with Barnabas, his co-worker. And knowing how these things work when you start off on the first of a new kind of ministry, he was probably figuring out how to, make, how to preach the gospel and how to, how to make his ministry function the best way. He was still trying to figure out this evangelism business, uh, especially taking it to new territories he'd never been to before. And he went to Lystra. It's a fairly remote town in south-central uh, modern Turkey. It's a Roman colony. And possibly there was a military base there. We're not totally sure about that, but it may have been. And he preached. And from other examples, we know we, we can guess that he probably preached off and on for many days in a, some public uh, location, maybe outside, outside of the temple, in the town square, uh, some other place where crowds could gather. And some, uh, a cripple was there, and he had some faith, and Paul saw it was adequate faith, and he healed him. And the people in the town said, wow, this is great. Our brother who's been crippled from birth is healed. But who can do this kind of stuff? 
uh, not an ordinary person. They must be gods. And so they started getting ready to worship. And Paul and Barnabas were shocked. And I can, uh, I can imagine Paul's thinking. He probably was saying, this isn't supposed to be what happens here. They're not supposed to worship us. They're supposed to be interested in Jehovah and in Jesus and in salvation. And so Paul pleads with them to stop. He tries to point them to the one true God. And from the brief account here, he doesn't even get to talking about Jesus. He just talks about who God is. And even then, they, he, he has a hard time getting through to them. Uh, Paul had been somewhere else previously, and uh, Jews, uh, uh, some Jewish people who hadn't been happy uh, in being there came, came along, and uh, they said, they told the crowds, these are bad guys. They're going to be bad news for your community. You've got to get them out of here. And so basically, they, uh, the crowd was incited. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city. They thought he was dead. Turns out he wasn't. He was revived, and next day he and Barnabas took off for another town. But basically, what was the result of his work? In modern terms, we would say it's a lynch mob. Not what most people would uh, think was a good thing. Uh, it's a negative example from, from Scripture, and some, many times we learn many things from negative examples. From other comments in, later on in Acts uh, in the New Testament, we know that a small number of people in Lystra actually did believe. Uh, probably on his earlier days in the preaching, I doubt that with all that going on, you would have any people coming to faith on that particular day. But one of those was a man named Timothy, who later on we know is very important in the New Testament. In spite of this controversy, they believed and, and hung on with their faith. Uh, and assuming that Timothy was typical of the few converts there, they were probably all Jewish people or from mixed Jewish-Gentile homes. But Paul and Barnabas wanted to reach the general population with the gospel message and win a hearing for the gospel in that population. And from that point of view, their missionary efforts at Lystra were a miserable failure. Now Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's describing the important events in the development of Christianity in the early days following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And he thought that this failure was an important event to record for uh, his readers and for, for posterity. So why? Oh, what happened? I just, uh, I just said that. Okay. An important event. Sorry, I'm not used to this. Uh, why did Paul and Barnabas fail at Lystra? What was their failure? What was their problem? Acts narrates various stages of the advance of the gospel in the world at that time. Uh, Luke describes it in, in Acts 1.8, uh, where Jesus said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the stages that Luke described can be analyzed sociologically and anthropologically uh, from taking the gospel to the people of the same religious and cultural background, Jewish people, but this gave them an immediate hearing. 
They use the same language, the same terms. They had the same color skin, they, the, the same clothing. They, they had the same way of talking. And then the gospel went out to others, Jewish converts, uh, Gentiles who were God-fearers. But all these people that Luke describes in the earlier chapters have a similar background. They have some contact, con, contact uh, with, uh, with Old Testament to uh, the Old Testament religion, with Judaism. Similar concept of God, similar concepts of sin, things like this. And so they were, in some sense, prepared to hear the gospel. But when Paul and Barnabas took the gospel message to Lystra, this was the first time that Luke records the gospel going to a people of a totally different cultural and religious background. Uh, the people were not prepared to receive the gospel. And they did not have a plan to win a hearing with these unprepared people. In today's world, uh, missionaries and evangelists need to have a plan to win a hearing for the gospel among unprepared people. And many people, even here in Florence, are unprepared. So let's take uh, some case studies of what, what does preparation look like. Uh, these are all the things that, uh, oh, there we are. There's, there's the need. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not running this, uh, this clicker uh, very well. But let's, uh, let me take the uh, first case study, unprepared American suburbanites. When I was a young man, before I moved to Torrance, I was involved with a, a church planning effort with a small denomination in New Jersey. And uh, there was a new community, uh, a residential area had been built, all new housing. People had moved in, a lot of young families. There were bedroom communities for New York City and other suburban areas in that area. So people would sleep there in the day and they'd, uh, in, the, in, the, in the night, and then they'd go to work somewhere else in the day. Um, and, but it's a lot of families, a lot of uh, children in, in the community. How do you reach a community like this? No churches at all. No gospel witness whatsoever. So one summer we, uh, we uh, uh, rented an elementary school for two weeks. During the days we, we made announcements in the community. During the days we put on a day camp for children, which is a felt need in the community. Something for the kids, because there wasn't much for the kids there. In the evening we put on a, a a film series for families. And out of that, a few people believed. And we afterwards, for a couple of weeks, uh, we went door to door to every home in the community with a survey, basically saying, we're the folks who did this, uh, had this uh, program. Uh, what interest do you have if there would be a church started in your community? Would you welcome a church? Well, because we had done something that was beneficial for the community, almost everyone, whether they were Christian or not, said, wow, you guys are good folks. Yeah, we'd welcome you. Only a smaller number said, yeah, I really want to be involved in that personally. But there was a positive impression made. Enough, enough of an impression and enough of an impact that this denomination was able to uh, send someone there to begin work by October of that year. Uh, they began a Bible study in the community and began meeting with people, contacts from that, that, those days. And by January, they had week, weekly services. 
and that the church is going on and growing uh, and having a really good impact. What was, how did we win a hearing? The preparation plan was in a visible and public way, we provided a needed service to families in the community. And it made us safe for them. Let me take a, a second case study. I, I served in Taiwan. These are unprepared Taiwan shop workers. Uh, in uh, Taiwan, there is a church, as I said, it's maybe three to three and a half percent of the population uh, are uh, Christians. It's mostly middle class and upper class. Educated people, professional people. Uh, and, but there's a whole substrata of people in society who didn't do well in school and are not, wouldn't identify with those people. And they step into a church and uh, they immediately just feel uncomfortable. I've talked with some of them. Uh, there's a woman in our church. I, I, I went to a, for worship, I worshiped in a, in a, a you, you might call it a yuppie church. And there was one woman with a, out of a very working class background who's a lovely believer now. And uh, we talked, my wife and I talked with her about that and she said, she knew what we were talking about because when she first had contact with the church and, and came to the, the activities, she felt so uncomfortable and it was so hard to be there. But for some reason, she stuck it out and she, she believed. Uh, but a lot of people won't. So we had a, how do you do, what do you do? How do you win a hearing in that kind of a situation? Well, one of our colleagues was uh, in a certain community in a suburb of uh, the Taipei area, the capital city, was, uh, trying to reach out, and uh, she realized that there were a lot of these working class people who were uh, working in, we call them shop workers. They're working in department stores, working in uh, beauty salons, uh, working in restaurants, doing all the grunt work of society. And they work long hours, you know, they, they might work seven days a week from 10 in the morning to 10 at night. And uh, in any church activity, is out because there's, there's an obvious time conflict there. So she began just visiting them, walking through the department stores, going to the beauty parlor. She had her hair done a lot. <laughs> uh, stopping for tea in a restaurant, not buying a whole meal, but having something so she could talk with the, with the people. She found that they were certain hours when their businesses were slower. And so she would go at those times and, and talk with them. Maybe share a, a, a tract or something, but just basically building friendships. She realized that these people were working hard, life was tough, and very hardly anyone really loved them or cared for them at all. And she also realized that uh, whereas in our country you, uh, someone would have a birthday and your friends would gather around you and have a birthday party, no one was celebrating their birthdays with them. So. What did she do? As she got to know them and she'd hear that their birthday was coming up, maybe she'd even ask, she'd say, hey, your birthday is on Thursday. Why don't you get some of your friends or coworkers come over to my place on Thursday night after work, 10 or 11 o'clock. Um, I'll bake a birthday cake and we'll have a birthday party for you. So they would show up, who is this strange foreign lady who's doing this? 
and what's this going to be, be all about? And they found out that she could actually bake a good birthday cake. <laughs> and she seemed so nice to them. And her place was a nice place to hang out. And she said, well, you can come over any night you want to. And so they started coming. And those humble beginnings of winning a hearing for the gospel by having birthday parties. Having birthday parties as a sign of love for people who don't receive much love. It was the start of a significant uh, ministry with a church that has uh, actually several preaching points now. Their, their worship service is Sunday night at 1030. Because that's when they have time available. Let's uh, look at a third case study. Unprepared Muslims in Uganda. Uh, this is from uh, the experience of the church I attend, the, the, uh, the uh, communi uh, Peninsula Community Church. Uh, and several years ago, I'm not quite sure how there was a connection, but uh, there, our church may have had a connection with a church in Uganda. There was a, a personal, someone knew someone. And uh, we did a mission visit just to uh, encourage the church, visit them. We didn't really have any activities, more a learning, a learning uh, uh, time. And the, uh, the pastor who went on this uh, trip said, the pastor there at some point said, is there any way our church could help your church? And uh, he said, immediately said, could you put on a medical clinic for us? Uh, and you have to understand, now there's some background here I need to uh, understand it because these are, it's an area, in northern Africa, you have majority Muslim populations. And they have their Muslim missionaries as well, and their Muslim evangelists. And they're bringing the Muslim faith south, and then the influence of the Muslim religion is growing and moving south. Central Africa, there are, there are a lot of places where there are churches and Christians, and right, there's a kind of a, a buffer or a, uh, I wouldn't call it a buffer, but there's a, there's a, a border kind of, that kind of runs a little bit through Uganda, where, uh, there's Muslims and Christians, and they're kind of coming up against one another. And the Muslims, the Muslim leaders tell their people, oh, you know about these Christians. Oh, they're terrible people. They do terrible things. They'll be bad for their, our community. You don't have anything to do with them. And so this church is trying to have a witness in this, uh, the community of Bombo, which is uh, a little ways out of Kampala, the capital city. And uh, the pastor thought, because most of those people are poor, if they get sick, they probably can't afford to go to the doctor. Uh, and he says, could we put on a medical clinic for them and as a sign of love for them and as a way to kind of, uh, shall we say, uh, as a sign of love and care. So for the last 11 years, we, our church has partnered with them and we send a team and uh, lots of drugs uh, and uh, some doctors uh, and we provide free medical services once a year for a week 
to this Muslim community under the sponsorship of, of their church, and their church is involved too, as a sign of love and care for them. And um, it seems to be really breaking down barriers for the gospel in that community. Now we have a, uh, a, a little video right now. This is, uh, our team went for the 11th time last year. I went, I, I went a year ago. Uh, this year our team just went about a month ago and I, we have a video from that, and this is the, the narrator is our, is our pastor. And let's, I'll, let's just look at that right now. It'll give you an idea of what that was like. morning here at the clinic there's a sense of excitement it's our last day we have seen we don't have the final numbers yet through Thursday but about 5,500 patient visits this week which is very busy for us um, I'm here at triage people are registering on their last chance to do that for this year's clinic and uh, Marsha's here uh, Carol Furlong's here uh, Lindsay's here they're all been working very hard to get these people registered Vitals taken, ready to go, and we're just going to walk through and, and see what everybody's doing this morning and uh, invade their space. Let's go. We better get permission here. Is it okay if we film in here for just a couple of minutes? So here we are in the pharmacy on Friday morning. They finished all of their work yesterday, so we were all celebrating, so they're a little slow. This is not typical at all of the pharmacy. But Mark is here and Cindy checking every prescription, making sure everything goes well. Paul is running the show, Hesteroy, and Margaret Hesteroy down, kind of down there. There they are. There we are. We are getting records of everybody who's come in. We are filling prescriptions. They're busily, you can see they're busy filling prescriptions over in the far corner. But uh, this will be the hub in about 45 minutes when patients start coming through. They're going to be swamped, so we're going to leave. We're not going to swamp at all. Here we are in the hub, I mean the hub of the entire operation. It is the administrative office where decisions are made and stuff is done. So Rob is here. He's working with uh, Becky this morning who's getting supplies for surgery. We have Andrew, which he does whatever I tell him to do. And there's Noah, we're doing whatever I tell him to do. And Brooke, who I do whatever she tells me to do. So uh, it's, it's, we're, we're flowing like a wonderful machine this morning on this last day of the clinic. Let's, let's keep moving.
we are in the, con the container, the storage, where, you know, if, if you listen to them, they're the hub of the office of the whole operation, but you and I know where the real hub is. But here they are, the hub of the entire, where do we go? Oh, here's Kristen and Jeremy and Brian, and they will have a very busy day, so we're going to let them do their thing, and I'm going to go burn some drugs. says do not enter. Here I am in a patient exam room. Stacey Lambers has seen uh, pediatric patients all week. She also will see internal medicine at the end of the day when pediatrics is done. Uh, but this is kind of where all the real medicine actually takes place. And there's like 15 or 16 of these all over campus at the same time. Hi, sweetie. Bombo's complete unless I introduce you to my Bombo family. And so they are as much a part of a team as everybody else. These are the amazing cooks who have fattened us up all week. So come on out here and say hi. You're greeting America. What do you say? I can't do it at all. If you've been counting, uh, you've seen 16 of our 17 team members. And so before we get to the very end, I want to make sure you get to introduce I introduce to you our very own photographer extraordinaire. I probably didn't do that right, Jeff Curtis. Uh, and it's probably not the right color or anything. You. All right, this is the end of the line where the clinic or a patient's visit officially ends. This is the pharmacy waiting area. This is the first time since um, Sunday afternoon last week that these chairs have been empty. And so we filled them all yesterday. These are the patients who've been here today and seen doctors already, and they will get their drugs uh, here. They'll call their name. There's a nurse there to explain how to take their uh, medicines, and then they're free to go. And hopefully God's at work, and we've shown them some love and compassion. The theme this year has been uh, the theme of the Good Samaritan out of Luke 10. And we've seen both our team and this church at Bombo and the hundreds of volunteers really be that Good Samaritan as they have shown with hands of love the grace in Christ that we, have, that we know. So here we are. We'll pack up tonight, and we'll come home. But we have seen really the hand of God at work. And it's been our honor and our joy to represent you, our church family. And uh, we can't wait to get home, but, but there's a part, part of us that wants to stay and continue the work as well. So have a great morning of worship, and uh, we've got lots of stories to tell when we get back home. God bless. The, uh, the uh, local church sends church members to be spiritual counselors. And they talk with people in the waiting areas. And when they show some spiritual interest, then they take them to a counseling room and talk with them, share the gospel with them. Uh, this year, out of those some close to 6,000 patient visits, uh, there were 323 people who were reported to make decisions for Jesus Christ. 
Now, you don't always know what their, those decisions always mean. But at the very least, it's the starting point for real belief in Jesus. And uh, last year, there was a 10-year celebration at the end of it. And the mayor from the town of Bombo uh, spoke. And uh, he's a Muslim and uh, gave, a th gave us a thank you for coming with, with us. It seems, and the pastor says, it just opens up all kinds of doors. So anyway, uh, how do you win a hearing? Lots of ways. You have to use creativity. But my question for you as I close my comments this morning is, what plan do you have to win a hearing for the gospel among the unprepared people around you? There are a lot of people in Torrance who have no idea of what the gospel is all about or what Christianity is all about, and they might even be antagonistic. How can you win a hearing with them?